Hi there, and welcome to Dialogos with me, Well Known, where we talk with some of the most interesting and insightful people in the world today. On today's episode, I'm joined by Michael Crick, one of the most dist- distinguished political journalists of the past 40 years, in which he has notably worked for Channel 4 News and Newsnight as a correspondent and editor. Alongside this, Michael has also written a number of best-selling books. Thanks so much for coming on today. My pleasure. Um, so, Michael, um, looking back to the start of your career, what did you set out to achieve initially? And do you think you've achieved this goal? Did you have a set purpose, a set like idea of what you want to contribute? Well, when I was even younger than you, and I was a teenager, you know, what, 14 or 15, I always wanted to go into politics when I grew up. Uh, I wanted to be prime minister. And I also enjoyed working on the school newspaper in Manchester. And in those days, you couldn't sort of go to university and then go off and become a special advisor or join a think tank because there were, there were very few special advisors in politics in the 1970s. There were very few think tanks, probably three or four, no more than that. You might be able to go and work for a trade union or something. But uh, I saw going into journalism as a sort of stopgap. Uh, something to do uh, in between the time between university and eventually finding myself a a seat that would elect me to parliament. And uh, so I became a, you know, I did student journalism at Oxford. I then got a traineeship with ITN and I got stuck into the whole world of television news, which is incredibly exciting. It was pretty well paid in those days as well. And you're doing new things, meeting new people, going different places all the time. And gradually the putting off, you know, the political career got put off and put off. And I was sort of always a bit of a Labour right winger, really. And the party had been taken over by the left in the 80s. I didn't really fancy it. And I was actually approached about fighting a by-election in, in on Merseyside. And I sort of turned the idea down. And I then sort and I was aged 32 at the time. And I sort of knew that politics was not going to be my career, uh, that I was having a lot more fun being a, a commentator, a follower, an analyst, a reporter, above all, of politics. And, uh, and I've had a, you know, a great time as a result. But I, I sort of am starting to regret it now in that I do think, um, you know, it was the lazy option in a way. I should have got stuck into public life mm. and public policy. Goodness knows how far I would have got, whether I would have been a minister or, or even an MP. Mm. Um, but I do think that in certainly in the current world, where with all the disasters we've got right now, uh, it is uh, the duty of people uh, of any ability to to come to the aid of the country. Um, and um, that's what I'm urging people now. And that's partly why I'm now doing my big project called At Tomorrow's MPs, which is all about who is it who's being chosen as parliamentary candidates, which is always the great turning point in a political career getting the, the selection for the good seat, for the seat you can win, or preferably the seat that you'll keep forever, or, you know, for several years, 30 years or so. And uh, yeah. because, of course, tomorrow's MPs are, are also tomorrow's, or a year or two afterwards, tomorrow's ministers. And it's the ministers that form the government that make the decisions and so on. And I think a lot of people would agree that the calibre of some of these people has gone down a lot in the last few decades. I mean, perhaps it's a matter of age in my past. You always think that uh, people, you know, people weren't as good as they were in your day. Uh, but I do think there's a lot of things about politics these days that put people off. Um, mm. And um, 
I do think we are choosing a lot of the wrong people to go into Parliament. Mm. And we should be choosing the best and the brightest. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a time when Britain was run by the aristocracy and they all had a, a sense of noblesse oblige. It was their duty to go into public life and into the Lords or the Commons or both um, and do their bit to uh, run the country. And of course, you can't run the country anymore by a bunch of aristocrats. But that sense of noblesse oblige, I think, is actually an asset which we, we rather lack these days. Mm. Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned it's best that we choose um, the best and the brightest, uh, most committed MPs. How do we do that? Because to be blunt, being a politician is a pretty rubbish job for quite a lot of the time. It is. Especially when, yeah. So how do you, how do you attract the right people to go into politics? Well, I think you've, you've got to create a sense of obligation, a sense mm. of being want, wanted. I think you've got to release politicians from some of the burdens of office. And I think, you know, the part that the media's played, and, and indeed I personally have been a play, been played, a played, may have uh, acted as a bit of a deterrent at times. I think you have to pay your MPs properly. I mean, they, they earn, what is it, 86,000 a year, I think, which is not a large sum of money for somebody who is a, a professional. Most professional people, uh, once they get into their 40s and 50s, will be earning better money than that. And of course, there's the job uncertainty, inevitably, in a democracy. Uh, MPs might lose their seat, or at least a lot of them have got a chance of losing their seat at the next election. They come under a huge amount of public scrutiny. They're expected to not just be members of parliament, they're often expected to be ministers as well. They're expected to scrutinise legislation, hold the executive to account, look after their constituents. I think the number of jobs that we give MPs to do uh, these days is a bit too much. On the other hand, I also think that there's um, we're trying to restrict them in, in further ways now. Uh, you know, we're actually saying that members of parliament can't hold second jobs. And I think there are, in, there are occasions when it's quite advantageous to allow members of parliament to have second jobs. For instance, when Kenneth Clark stopped being Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1997, he carried on in the House of Commons. He got a number of lucrative directorships with British American Tobacco and other firms. And he regularly would make insightful speeches from the backbenches about the economy, about the war in Iraq, about big issues. The same with Michael Heseltine. He was a uh, you know, he ran a business while also being a member of parliament when he was on the back benches. And I think that there's, there is something, there's an asset for that. Whereas if the Labour Party had its way right now, it's going to ban people from doing uh, second mm. jobs. Um, and, uh, and so people will say, right, well, I've been a minister now. I'm not doubt I'll be appointed a minister again. I'll leave the House of Commons and go, go off and do my directorships there. So you will, you will lose the collective wisdom and experience and understanding of uh you know the way the world works and, and the various problems yeah. and problems which recur you know again and again every few years so i think we've i think i mean i don't have any really great answers to these problems um but I, what i do think is that we need a lot more scrutiny on the selection processes which is where my little project which is only a small mm. center at this stage yeah. comes in and i think that we need to try and do all we can to root out the you know the crooks and the wrong uns and the people frankly mm. who just aren't up to the job at yeah. an early stage but 
the forces right now are actually in the opposite direction. There's a sort of view amongst the general public. And after all, we are a democracy. We have to yeah. take note of what the public say. There is a view amongst mm. the general public, reflected also by the party activists in all the major parties, I think, that it's a good idea for your candidates to be local. Um, mm. What's meant by local is never always explained. Sometimes, you know, does it mean you, you, you're the MP for the place where you were born or the place where you brought up or the place where you live now? But what I would say, that, and indeed, you know, most the vast majority now of candidates chosen by Labour and the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats are do have some substantial local connection. The trouble is, by that requirement that candidates be local, you're reducing a, a huge amount of choice. You're reducing the choice that the individuals have for the places they go for. So they, you know, there's perhaps two or three places they can claim they're local to some degree. Uh, well, if they uh, fail to get selected for those places, that's it. Their, you know, their political career is over until you know the next time comes round of the people who've chosen instead leave the Commons. And it also reduces the choice for the parties. And you find a, you know, a lot fewer people, fewer people these days are applying to be candidates because they think they'll get beaten by some local person. Whereas in the old days, you'd get gangs of, uh, almost gangs of, you know, would-be candidates going around the country and they'd have a go in Hereford and then they go to Stockport and then they go to Leicester. And, and in, you know, one of them would get chosen and they would move on. And all I would say to the people who, who, who believe that it's really, really important that MPs are local. I'd say, look, tell me, you know, no matter what your party is, Labour, Conservative or whatever, who are your political heroes? And then go through the list of political heroes that you have and ask which ones were local, were local to the places where they were MPs. I mean, Tony Benn is a good example. Widely recognised, whatever you think of his politics, and he was pretty left-wing uh, at the end of his career, but he was widely recognised as being a good constituency MP. But he wasn't local when he got chosen as Labour candidate for Bristol in 1950. And he wasn't local when he was chosen for Labour, as Labour candidate for Chesterfield in 1984. So uh, I don't actually think you need to be local to be a good MP. And I'll tell you something else. There are a lot of people who look local and have been local councillors and who will be dreadful MPs because it requires a whole different skill set. and. A lot of people who've been quite successful running local councils, they go to Westminster and their careers fizzle out. And that is, that is, I think, uh, a really important trend at the moment. And it's, it's the, you know, a huge contribution to the decline, I think, in the calibre of our members of parliament. I mean, of the, of the ones of the, what are we getting up to now? We're getting on for more than 250 candidates now chosen by Labour and the Conservatives. And hardly any of them have got any record of achievement on the national stage, let alone the international stage. There are one or two exceptions. I mean, James Cracknell is an, an Olympic uh, gold medalist. He's the Conservative yeah. candidate for, for culture. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it's, you'd really do need people of, uh, I'm not sure that Cracknell fits this, but you do need people who have done something, have done things, big things, running big companies or running big trade unions or think tanks or uh, pressure groups or um, uh, you know, to, uh, and people, and you need really clever people. You know, we're, pe people who've got the ability to to understand how this issue is connected with that issue, connected with that issue, which is then linked back to this issue. And somehow we've got to work our way through all of these because the problems the world faces right now, in my view, 
are bigger than they've ever been. You know, we could, the human race could be annihilated for one of any number of reasons right now. I mean, I'm laughing, but one shouldn't do. But I mean, but the the, the uh, and and that that's not been the case in the past. And uh, our, it's it's not so much my generation, but your generation and the generation in between have got have got to get on with this urgently. And we need more people to give up the idea of going and making zillions of pounds in the city of London. And you know, regarding it as their duty to go into Westminster or going to Whitehall as as top civil servants, you know, the really top brains from the top universities um, or, or people who are top brains and don't go to university. And there are still lots of those. We what we need those in public life. You know, they want to make money in the city. OK, we'll do that until you're 30. You can earn quite a lot by the time you're 30 and then go into politics and, and do it on 86,000 pounds a year. Although, you know, I hope that that salary level can be. Uh, well, ideally, I think it should be, be doubled, but you'd have a lot of trouble persuading the British public that. Hmm. Well, bring it back to you over this over this these past years. How do you think you've contributed to the political scene, or you and your your and journalists in general? Do you think you've made a positive contribution in terms of the politicians that we that we have? Uh, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, sometimes I think maybe what a lot of what I've done has been rather negative. I mean, hmm. I I have a, a reputation, I suppose, as being a journalist who, uh, you know likes challenging politicians, yeah. uh, you know, asking them tough questions, delving into their pasts and finding naughty things that they've done in the past. Um, I think it's very difficult to measure the success of journalism or good journalism. Uh, I think a lot of it is to do with keeping people on their toes. And uh, it would be interesting to do an exercise and asking people in power um, how much do you worry about your actions and whether they might suddenly appear on the front page of the Times tomorrow morning or in Private Eye or in my case on Newsnight or Channel 4 News? And sometimes it's not, it's not what you, the particular story that you expose or that you headline uh, that makes a difference. It's the possibility that you might uh, expose a story or a headline. It's rather similar to a, another role I have right now, which is as a, uh, a non-executive governor of uh, a university. And I, I used to hold it at Manchester. I'm now at Kent. And I like to think it's not so much the, always the questions I ask in the meetings, but it's the questions I might ask. So they've got mm. to think through, well, how would we justify this for, to, to Michael and the other members of the board, what we're doing here and how we've made that decision? And um, the danger is, of course, that that challenge and the possibility of challenge, be it of politicians being challenged by national journalists or be it of you know, senior figures in the public sector being challenged by their non-executive board members, the danger is that it becomes onerous and it makes their jobs a lot harder. Uh, but I think the balance is, frankly, in both cases, still in the opposite direction. I do think the standards of journalism in this country have improved, overall improved massively in the 45 years I've been a journalist. Uh, I mean, there are exceptions to that. There's a lot less local, good local journalism these days, and that is tragic. And it means that local government is not uh, scrutinised in anything like the, the degree that it used to be. 
but and and I but I think the ethical standards of journalism have gone up hugely as well. Listen, journalists used to get up some pretty terrible things in the early eighties when I first became one, uh, particularly in broadcasting. A lot of expense fiddling going on, and a lot of story fiddling going on at times. Um, and I don't think they'd ever get away with that now, quite rightly. Um, so, uh, but anyway, I'm wandering off the track. You're, yeah, I think I've answered your question in there somewhere. But if not, no, you have. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, but more, and more tangibly, you've obviously become known uh, for your skill in chasing down politicians. Um, I think it was the phrase Michael Crick is in reception has become. Has become yeah, well, that, remote, that's from your part of the world, actually. It was. I, I think it was raised by um, uh, great. What's his name? Um, a local MP, Labour MP, oh, okay. uh, during the yeah. uh, Fraser Kemp and uh, Durham oh, yeah. MP in and, and it was in the Hartlepool by-election in 1984, and he coined that phrase mm. then. Uh, I I hate it in a way because people always bring it up, and <laughs> it, it it gives me a status way beyond what I deserve. No. Um, also, it frightens people a bit. I mean, most of the time, I'm not very frightening. I'm quite kind no. most of the time, I like to think. <laughs> no, you're, you're very kind, especially with my with my two hours lateness to this to this interview. Oh, no, I'm not frightening. No. 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 Uh, so how did you how did you hone that craft then? How how did you and is what would was that the norm? Were from? you were you one of the first people to go into that type of sort of very like on it there's the politician we're going to chase him down were you one of the first or was that an established way of journalism i think that, that there's always a balance in journalism if, if, within specialist journalism particularly there's a balance between getting close to the decision makers and the powerful people hmm. and you know sometimes that closeness can develop into friendship and, and it's happened with me once or twice uh, and yeah standing back, keeping your distance and asking tough questions. And I think in the past, the balance was too cosy. The relationship was too cosy, particularly with what's known as the parliamentary lobby. Those are the journalists at Westminster who've got parliamentary passes and meet politicians every day and lunch with them and drink with them and even sleep with them at times. Um, not in my case. And uh, the uh, and, and it, it can get too cosy. And, and it means that you're you don't ask the tough questions you need to be asked. And it, it, and, it, and I mean, for instance, take the parliamentary expenses scandal. I mean, you were pro you're probably too young to remember it. But back in 2009, it was exposed that lots of MPs were making false expense claims. And of so this was sort of known about at Westminster. But everybody sort of turned a blind eye and we thought, well, you know, that, you know, they, they, we all laughed about it a bit, really, but it was actually rather serious. And and there are other stories like that too, where where the the the, the journalists covering the story um, really don't they lose a sense of proportion, and they they allow the people in charge to get away with uh, with uh, not murder, but you know some pretty awful things. And you still see that in the world of football uh, and sports journalism. You see, I mean, I notice this a bit because I'm interested in football and write about it as well, and how the football correspondents who are close to particular clubs or close to particular managers don't ask tough questions of those clubs and managers. And actually, a lot of the best sports journalism in the last couple of decades has been by journalists who are not specialist football or sports journalists. They're outsiders who, who don't uh, live in fear of losing all their contacts 
because uh, they haven't got any contacts. They're having to do it by, by other means. But um, the, I mean, in terms of, of, of the skills involved, I think you, you, I mean, if you're a broadcaster, you, you do develop, uh, and a lot of this is instinctive. It would be very difficult for me to describe a lot of it, but in terms of questioning, you know, you've got you've got occasions when you're 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 asking tough questions, and I do a lot of that, and and you know, and you have to persist and 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 not let them get away with not answering it or not answering it properly. On the other hand, there are other occasions when you're you're trying to you know tease stuff out of people, getting them to you know open up and expand and tell us more, and uh, you know, and you've got to get th those sort of balance. And sometimes you'll do the same in the same interview. So um, and that and that is something you just pick up as you go along i think um the other thing i think is crucial to being a good journalist and i, I and, and it fits in quite neatly because i was a train spotter in my youth i used to collect train numbers and um, i now collect telephone numbers and you know, having the phone number uh preferably the mobile phone number of uh important people is uh, such an advantage i mean in my phone i've got about i don't know 14,000 names of people, not just in politics, but all walks of life. And every day there are more ones going in there. And it does mean that when something comes up, I've already got several of the people involved and I can get onto them straight away or try and get on, or at least leave a message. Um, whereas people who are less assiduous at collecting all of that um, are, uh, you know, they're struggling. They're having to find the numbers from somebody else or a colleague or online or whatever. I'll send an email. Um, and again, you also build up huge contacts over the years. Now, in, in, in my case, contacts are not, you know, hardly any of them are close, but they're people I'm on friendly terms with generally, uh, not always. Um, and, you know, I very rarely, you know, would invite important people or people in politics. I mean, there are a few, there's probably a dozen politicians I would regard as personal friends. But there are some journalists who have, you know, scores and scores of politicians as personal friends. And, you know, some journalists do it one way and other journalists do it another. And you can make the case in opposite directions. I prefer to keep a certain distance. I think it's probably because I'm a naturally a shy person, actually. Okay. And I find it difficult to talk to people and um, particularly people, uh, you know, I don't know very well to start with. And. Um, and I also find it, I think we all do, I find it difficult to um, ask difficult questions of somebody who, you know, regards themselves as a friend. And occasionally I've actually said, no, I don't think I can do this story. So-and-so is my, so-and-so is my a friend. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing justice to you as an, my employer to be put onto that story. I mean, I mean it happened, you know, two or three times, that's all. Um, but um, the, those are the, uh, uh, the two things, I suppose the two basic things I'd say, I mean, I think it's all about good, being a good journalist isn't about having an amazing brain. A lot of it is about having a natural curiosity. Why is, why is this going on? What's going to happen next? You know, or a natural desire and enthusiasm uh, mm. to ask the questions and have the energy uh, and the imagination. You know, how do we find this out? Where, where do we go? And to actually like getting out there and going to places and talking to people. And the, the way I got around that sort of shyness was to sort of say, well, I'm not Michael Crick, ordinary person. I'm Michael Crick, you know, reporter for Newsnight or Channel 4 News or Panorama or whatever. And I'm doing it, I, you know, I'm doing it for them. 
Uh, and that way, uh, I think, gave me a, a much more of a confidence to go and to go and ask questions. But go out and explore. You, it's amazing what you will find if you go out and look, go to places and look and talk, and in a way that you won't find it with just sitting there on the phone. It's the easiest thing in the world to sit on, sit at a desk on the phone or doing your emails, and you'll get a certain part of the way, and you know, reading documents. But uh, things only come to life, particularly if you're a broadcaster, particularly if you're a, a television broadcaster. Things really come to life once you get there. I mean, not always. Occasionally, the weather's rubbish and, you know, it's raining and grey and cold and you can't find anybody. But nine times out of ten, you go somewhere and try hard and you'll bring a story to life. And that, that's the great joy of being a television reporter. Sadly, there are fewer and fewer television reporters these days. And I, my fear is that in about 20 years time, we'll all be, uh, you know, robots and uh, yeah. you know, AI, uh, whatever the word is, the, the, you know, the none of us will be genuine. And there'll be, I mean, whether, whether uh, AI can re re reproduce humor and character and all of that, mm. I don't know, I imagine it will be able to eventually. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I'm uh, coming to an end of my, well, actually, I've got another 20 years to go, but I'm glad yeah. that um, I'm, <laughs> I've been able to do it at this time. You know, a really exciting era yeah. in, uh, well, I mean, I've worked in television for, you know, getting on for half the time that television has existed. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I'm, I'm someone who really wants to be a journalist, but then I sort of look at, like, the future, and I'm sort of like, is that... Is that the right path? But then surely if AI takes over journalism, it's taking over everything. So sort of we're, we're doomed regardless. There'll, there'll always be that. I mean, well, certainly while you're in your time. I mean, what are you, 20 or something? 18, yeah. Sorry? 18. Oh, 18, right. Yeah, there, there'll be, there'll be, you know, there'll be room for the, the more enjoyable bits, you know, the, 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 yeah. the, the good writing, the digging away, the tracking people down uh, and, um, I mean, that's that's one of the great joys, actually, trying to find people. And then you find them, you know, and, it, mm. it, and it's sort of detective work uh, without very yeah. rarely with any of the danger unless you're a, in a war. Yeah. You know. But um, the uh, I mean, it is an immensely uh, enjoyable thing to do. And it's, a, a you know, a socially useful and responsible thing to do that, you know, essentially good journalism is holding people in power to account. For their actions. The trouble is, we're a bit thin on the ground these days. Uh, newspapers are, you know, are in a huge decline, and even broadcasting doesn't have the. I mean, you know, take a program like Newsnight. It's, you know, it's 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 a, it's a shadow of what it used to be when I was there. We had a big team of reporters, and you could spend, you know, several weeks on just one good film. Uh, well, they don't get the time to do all of that these days. I mean, admittedly, a lot of the money I think got got wasted in the past, if I'm being honest about it. But now, they, uh, you know, I think they, they only have one one cameraman a day or something. I mean, it's it, they don't have the resources, and without the resources, you need the you need the resources and the time and the time to fail. Actually, you need yeah. to be able to do stories, and you need to be able to say, well, I, you know, we might not get to the bottom of this story, uh, but. Can we have we got you know? Can we take the risk and give it a go? And if the editor says, "Yeah, but you've got to produce something," then uh, you 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 pick the low hanging fruit and you don't actually uh, go on and explore the complicated stuff. Um, yeah. So you know, and every time the BBC makes cuts in Newsnight, and I can understand why they do it because the overall BBC budgets are being cut. Um, then every time that happens, then 
dodgy politicians and businessmen and incompetent government officials and you know all the ne'er-do-wells of this world must you know sleep a little bit more easily at night uh, knowing yeah. that uh, the, the the bad things they get up to be it incompetent things or criminal or dishonest things uh, the bad things they get up to are, are less likely to be exposed hmm. um you touched on uh earlier kind of briefly um uh, on impartiality mm-hmm. and obviously that's quite a uh, over the past few days impartiality and uh GB News and your appearance has it's been quite the top of the sort of one of the top news stories. Um, I'm just sort of wondering, first of all, obviously, you mentioned earlier on how you were involved in Labour and you were very clearly very opinionated. How does it feel um, going to journalism, having to be impartial the, the whole time? And then and does it feel claustrophobic? And then uh, and then further, further to that, um, in light of uh, your appearance and could you maybe just outline what happened on GB News what what do you think the state of impartiality on broadcast journalism is these days well there, there are a lot of big questions there I'm sorry yeah when I went into telly I had political ambitions and um, and, and it, it took me a while to realize that in the office people didn't express their political views I mean you could guess what their political views might be from the lifestyles they led or the backgrounds they came from and so on. And, but I, you know, I was in the habit of saying, well, that's a bad decision by the government or by the Labour Party or whatever. And I remember one of my senior bosses, a great, a great guy called Paul McKee, said, the trouble with you, Michael, is you're, you're too opinionated. Now, you, you need to have an opinionectomy, he said. And, you know, I did have an opinionectomy. It was very painful. <laughs> but it, what it meant was that for about 35 years, from sort of the, you know, the, the, my, when when I ran, yeah, the sort of mid-80s, early 80s, right up until the time I left um, Channel 4 News in 2019, uh, I there were a lot of things which I didn't have an opinion on because I didn't have to have an opinion on. Mm-hmm. I just had to, you know, be knowledgeable about the subject. And obviously some things are so outrageous, you're bound to have an opinion on. But a lot of things are well finely balanced and, on the one hand this, on the other hand that. And I think that happens to a lot of people who work in broadcasting, not all of them uh, by any means. But, uh, you know, I, and um, and I suppose I just sort of had an opinionectomy by fault, default over those 40 years. And now I'm free again and I don't work from a, uh, for a broadcasting company anymore, um, apart from you know, the odd freelance appearance. I'm now allowed to develop opinions of my own. Indeed, I'm, you know, the broadcasters that employ me, like... Uh, the Jacob Rees-Mogg programme on GB News, you know, I'm expected to express a strong view of my own. And so I have now been redeveloping my political views. Um, but I do think that it's important that uh, mainstream broadcasting in this country maintains its impartiality and that Ofcom polices it, the impartiality. Well, it doesn't these days. Ofcom is a pathetic organisation. Uh, you know, they might as well be closed down in terms of its, its governing of broadcasting because the way they've handled gb news uh, as i explained on the program and this wasn't the first time i've said this on gb news i've said it i must have said six or seven times on gb news that i felt ofcom should close gb GB news down because it's riding a coach and horse. frankly it's taking the piss out of the broadcasting rules in this country and if gb news can get up get away with a timetable of programming where one program after another is uh, presented either by a Conservative MP or a former Conservative MP 
And when it's not presented by a Conservative MP, it's presented by a former uh, leader of the Brexit party, Nigel Farage. And when Nigel Farage is on holiday, it, the pro same programme is presented by Farage's successor as leader of the Brexit party, Richard Tice. I mean, it's uh, it's beyond a joke. I mean, and, and you know, Farage's press officer, Patrick Christie's, uh, within the Brexit Party is now another presenter on GB News. There are, you know, well, there were one or two presenters, you could say, a Labour. But the, the, the imbalance is ridiculous. It's, a, it's essentially a right-wing propaganda channel. Now, they say, well, we set out to give a variety of views and to express views uh, that have never had an airing before. And if that was true, I'd be all in favour of that. And indeed, you know, in the early days when I heard about GB News, I thought this looks quite promising. But it's become more and more right wing. And frankly, uh, some of the views expressed on the channel are pretty nutterly right wing. Um, and, you know, climate change deniers and anti-vaxxers and so on. Uh, that, um, I mean, it's fun to go on them. And I go on it because I do think alternative views need to be voiced. I don't think you can just get let those people get away unchallenged and unanswered. And I think that's the big mistake we made over Brexit, that for 20, 25 years, the case against the European Union grew and grew, and, or at least the arguments against them grew and grew and grew. And nobody was, was joining the debate and making the case for the European Union. Um, so that's why I do it. But I mean, a lot of people think I shouldn't do it. I'm giving them a bit of credibility, they would argue. But anyway, that, that that's a, a, a bit of a sideline. But I do think Broadcasting impartiality, particularly at a time when our political discourse is more and more polarised and fraught and frankly unpleasant at times, uh, I do think the rules on broadcasting impartiality, which apply to all the Ofcom government channels, really do need to be strictly applied. Because after all, if, oh, if GB News can get away with a non-stop stream of... Uh, Conservative MPs who who give a soft run, uh, soft interviews to their chums in the House of Commons, then what's to stop Newsnight doing the same thing or Channel Four News and just having a discussion with three left wingers? And you know, I'm not I'm not attacking this from a left wing point of view. I suppose I'm slightly left of centre. I mean, I'm a centrist really and a pluralist. But I actually made a speech in Oxford four years ago, I think it was, or five, three years ago. Um, uh, a lecture uh, which about all of this, and I argued that uh, in recent times, Channel Four News and parts of the BBC had, had become too left wing. But in in the left wingness that they came occasionally on Newsnight and Channel Four News was nothing like as right wing mm. as 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 GB News has become. And I mean, I don't know what Mike, Michael Grade is the chairman of GB News. Michael Grade was one of the greatest broadcasters in broadcasting history. He's now 80. He gives, him, gives me every impression of being past it. And I get mm. no sense that GB, uh, that uh, Ofcom uh, are getting a grip on. Uh, did I make it clear yeah. Michael Grade was from Ofcom, not GB News? Michael, Michael okay. Grade, chairman of Ofcom. Uh, yeah. And, you know, if he was the old Michael Grade, he would have get a grip on this. But I suspect yeah. he's been put, he's now a Conservative peer. I suspect he's been put in charge of Ofcom uh, to not get a grip on this. And uh, that's what's happening. They're getting away with murder. And uh, mm. it's really, really sad. And it means that broadcasting will be in decline. But I suppose if you're a Conservative government and you're a, you know, or Conservative MP, you're pleased that there's a channel that is uh, right wing in your direction. But it, yeah. it's not, 
it's very, very bad news for broadcasting journalism as a whole. And I'm determined to speak out of the fact against it. And if in the end GB News want to sack me because they don't like my views, well, so be it. Mm. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast today. I really enjoyed it. Um, Julian, and, and, and um, apologies for my lateness, but thank you so much. Worried about that. And best of luck for your... Sorry, I, I got into a bit of a rant there, but I, at the no. end, but I do feel really strongly about those views. But best of luck with your career. I mean, thank you. I, I, what would I say? I'd say, uh, you know, persist. You will have to go through... It's not, like, it's not as well paid as it used to be, but you can, have, you can still have a lot of fun and get around a lot and meet lots of people and go places. And, um, you know, the stars still make, you know, if you're a star columnist or a star uh, presenter, uh, you can yeah. still make uh, a decent income. But I suspect that's not the, the primary uh, goal for you. And, yeah. uh, the, you know, uh, give it a go. And, and remember, um, it's one of those um, professions where you can't be too pushy when you apply for a job because pushiness is actually one of the attributes of being a journalist. Uh, you know, going. Go, yeah, as yeah. They always say, you know, putting the, putting your foot in the door. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. put in the. You know, go and ask for jobs. I know it's difficult. Yeah. But, uh, go and ask for jobs in a way that you might not do if you were uh, seeking a career in some other walk of life. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's really, really insightful. And thanks so much. Um... Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dialogos. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you did enjoy it, uh, please feel free to leave a rating. Uh, and give the podcast a follow um, for more interviews with more fascinating people. Um, there should be hopefully a couple uh, coming out over Christmas, so look out for them. Some really cool people hopefully coming up. And yeah, um, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.